Well, recently in our sermon series from the Shorter Catechism, we've been looking at the section that tells us how God the Father sent Jesus Christ to redeem us. Questions 12 to 19 told us how we fell from our happy and holy estate in which God created us into a condition of sin and misery. We saw that it was no light matter, that we were rendered foul and obnoxious by sin, and we became subject to misery and wrath, both in this life and in all eternity. We are, apart from God's rescue, utterly ruined and hopeless by the fall. But with question 20 came the good news. Let's confess together question 20. Question 20, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And with question 21, we saw who the Redeemer is. Let's confess that one together as well. Question 21, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continued to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And then with question 22, which was the one we looked at last week, we saw how Christ became a man. Let's recite together question number 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. So we saw from this that God the Son, who is eternally God, truly did become also man. He had to do this if he was going to redeem us. And this week, with question 23, we're going to look at how we also had to, how he also had to be given offices, and at how he was given three offices in order that he might redeem us. So today we'll look at these offices in a summary fashion, and then uh, in the weeks to come we'll look at them one at a time, and then at humiliation and exaltation as well. So a number of questions that are related. This is sort of one of those questions that is a table of contents for what happens in the in the next little bit where we're going so let's confess the question for this week it's question 23 question 23 what offices doth christ execute as our redeemer christ is our redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet of a priest and of a king both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation and in looking at this question today, we'll consider first that God the Father appointed Christ to fill offices for him. 
And then we will survey the scriptures and we'll find that Christ was given the offices of prophet, of a priest, and of a king. And then that we must receive him in all three offices if we would be saved. We'll look at the fact that we must receive him if we would be saved. So for our scripture reading, I've chosen Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 11. And we will um, we'll proceed without reading now, so give your attention as we, as we look at God's holy and infallible word. You'll see here that it talks about Christ being anointed, and it refers to his offices in various ways of prophet, priest, and king, not necessarily by name, but the works of those offices. So Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. This text demonstrates our first point, that God the Father appointed Christ to fill offices for him, to be an officer. First, we need to consider what an officer is. An officer is one who has been given authority to carry out the work assigned to him by someone in authority over him who appointed him. We're familiar with police officers. A police officer is appointed by those who govern a society to enforce justice and to promote law and order in the place that is assigned to him. We're familiar with CEOs of big companies, chief executive officers who are appointed by the owners of the company to oversee the business. 
for the company. Even though they are leaders, they are in fact servants to those who have hired them. There are two things that are required for someone to be an officer. First, that person must be officially appointed, commissioned, or sent to carry out the tasks that they have been given. He is given authority to act in behalf of the one who sent him to carry out functions for that one. Second, he must be furnished with what he needs to carry out the work. He includes such things as a police car for the policeman or a desk for the CEO, perhaps staff or money, whatever is needed to do the work that he has been given to do. The scripture tells us that Jesus was officially commissioned and fully furnished for the offices that the Father gave to him. In other words, he was given both authority and resources to be God's officer, to carry out the work of redemption. This is spelled out for us in the passage that we read, especially in verse 1 of Isaiah 61. We can be sure that this verse is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ because he himself in Luke tells us that it is about him. We're told in Luke 4.16 that he came to his hometown of Nazareth and that when he had entered the synagogue that he opened deliberately to this passage and uh, he was handed a scroll of Isaiah and he turned to this and read and he and he found the passage that we read a minute ago when he got his scroll and he read from it. And then in, in Luke 4.21, we're told that he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. With these words, he made the bold claim that Isaiah 61 was a prophecy about him. And he began to speak about how God's people had always rejected their own prophets, knowing that they would not accept him. And indeed, they proved his point right then and there. And they came against him and tried to push him off of a cliff and his people that were from his own hometown. The point is, though, we know that Isaiah 61 refers to our Lord Jesus Christ because he tells us that it does. So now, look at how we... Look at how we have in Isaiah 61.1 a description of how Christ was put into office by his father. The father furnished him and commissioned him. First, Jesus speaks of his being furnished for office. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now this refers to what we know about Jesus that the Father furnished him with the Holy Spirit to carry out the work of the offices that he was given. That's the reason we call him the Christ. The evangelists tell us that the Holy Spirit was given to him at his baptism for office. For example, in Matthew 3.16, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. To him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. It was after this that Jesus entered into his official ministry, that he was after he was anointed with the Spirit. John describes this anointing with the Holy Spirit with these words, John three thirty four. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, 
for God does not give the Spirit by measure. That speaks of how he was fully furnished. He did not have the Spirit in a measured way, but in an unmeasured way, a full provision of the Spirit of God. It is because of this anointing with the Holy Spirit then that he is called Christ, because the name Christ means anointed one. Christ from Christos in Greek is a title that means anointed one, and Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, because he was given the Spirit in this unmeasured way. Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, is the Old Testament word that means anointed one. This title, like Christ, refers to the one that God set apart to office by pouring the Holy Spirit on him. This is how God furnished him with all authority and ability to carry out these offices. But I also told you that an officer must be sent or commissioned. If he just has furnishing for office, but he doesn't have a mandate, then how can he be an officer? He has to have a a commission given to him by the one who appointed him. And if you read in verse 1 of Isaiah 61, you can see that Christ says, He has sent me. And then he lists off a number of things that he, God the Father, had given him to do to achieve the goal of his office, the goals and objectives of his office. We'll look at these objectives in just a moment, but first I simply want you to see that he was indeed sent by the Father, commissioned by him. Jesus simply says here, he sent me. Hebrews 5, though, makes much of the fact that Christ was officially sent by the Father and that he could not have done his work if he had not been sent. In speaking of those who serve in the office of priest, it says in Hebrews 5, 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, in other words, the father who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus very often refers to this fact. For example, when he says things like John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He is sent to do God's work. He is sent on God's business. It is for this reason that Hebrews 3.1 calls him the apostle of our confession. Apostle means sent one, one who is sent on official business. So really an apostle is an officer. Jesus had 12 apostles and God the Father had one apostle. Jesus Christ was the apostle that was sent by the Father and the 12 were the apostles that were sent by Jesus. So to summarize you see that Jesus Christ is God's officer. He was furnished for office by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and he was officially sent by the Father to do his work. And now we'll look, as I told you that we would, at what he was sent to accomplish. The official work of Jesus was to accomplish two related things that are spelled out beautifully in poetic form in Isaiah 61. First, that he was by his work and office to bring his people into a condition of blessedness. 
God had told Abraham from way back when he established his covenant with them that I will bless you and make you a blessing and that in your seed the nations of the earth will be blessed. So his task was to bring blessing to God's people. Look at how this is described in the first three verses of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. That's one of the things he's to do, to heal the brokenhearted. Another thing, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And of course, this acceptable year of the Lord was something that he himself achieved, that he brought God's favor to us, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You can see why I uh, summarized it as restoring us, his people, to a condition of blessedness. He's, he's bringing, bringing gladness to his people and, and restoration and healing and escape from prison, all the bondage, all of these things. How glad it ought to make us that this was the objective of the work that the Father gave him to do. What if the Father had sent him to do something else that wasn't a blessing to us? This is, this is our, uh, our great privilege to have an officer that's here for the purpose of blessing his people. The second goal of his work is described at the end of verse 3 and in verses 10 and 11 as well. That the people God blesses will be a people that bring glory to God by their righteousness and by their joyful praise of him. So as verse 3 says, the outcome of Jesus restoring the goal of his office is that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord and that he may be glorified. People that are established by God, a city that is established by God and that is a a righteous tree, one that is righteous in God's eyes. And then in verse 10 and 11, echo this in the voice of the worshiping community that Jesus establishes, which says, verse 10 and 11, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That's the work of his office. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. That's his work as well. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So he he does all of these things in his office to bring blessing to his people And then it goes out into all the world. That is the work that Jesus was given to do by the Father. The goal of his office is to make blessed, worshiping people. People who love God, as we saw this morning. But we now need to consider just what those offices are that he was given. Because he was given more than one. He was given three offices. When we survey the scripture, we find that to be so. Let's look at this. These three offices were established in the Old Testament types and shadows. So we'll look at that first, how the offices were were brought forth as types in the Old Testament. A type is a pattern of what is to come, and a shadow is an outline of things to come. 
So let's look at the three offices as they are presented. The first office presented to us is that of a prophet. Moses is a leading example. When he is first getting into his work in Exodus 7-1, the Lord says to him, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. You shall speak all that I command you. Moses is, in other words, God's official spokesman. That's an office of prophet. Of course, we find that the people he speaks to most in God's behalf are not the Egyptians, but the covenant people who have God as their God. Moses continually says to them, thus says the Lord, because he is there in the name of the Lord. He's one that is truly appointed and equipped to speak God's word to them. He brings them God's commandments. He brings them God's promises. He brings them God's warnings so that when they hear Moses, they hear from God. And they knew that. You remember at Mount Sinai when God spoke in a more direct way to them and they were terrified and they said, don't let God speak to us like that anymore. They wanted Moses to speak to them. And God said they were right to ask that. God had many other such prophets who declared the will of God to his people until the coming of Christ. The Lord speaks of his faithfulness to continually speak to his people by these officers. In Jeremiah 7.25, he speaks of it with these words. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until now, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. It's not only the ones that we have direct record of in the scripture, but there are other prophets we're told of that, you know, they didn't necessarily write a book in the Bible, but they were ministering among God's people as officers who spoke for God. The second office presented in types and shadows of old is the priest. Now, let me just pause here for a second and make a comment before I move on. Uh, When we look at these offices in the Old Testament, these officers, see, the Old Testament lays a foundation so that we can understand our Lord Jesus Christ. And we dare not skip over the Old Testament and say, oh, that's the Old Testament. We just look at the New Testament. Because when the New Testament starts talking about Christ being a high priest or about him being a prophet that God sent or things like that, We don't know what that means without the context and the foundation of the Old Testament. So the second office presented in the types and shadows of old is that of priest. The work of the priest was to offer sacrifices in behalf of the people. While the prophet represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. So you you see the difference. The prophet is speaking for God. And then the priest is going to God in behalf of the people. So there's it's, it's a different kind of a, a, a connection there. The offerings were made to make atonement for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And of course, this was very much needed. And you know, here again, if you don't understand this, and you aren't well versed in the Old Testament about the priest, then you're not going to understand the gospel. You're not going to understand Jesus is just going to be a moral example or something like that. Aaron is a leading example of one who served in this office. In Exodus 28.1, we have God's instructions to Moses to make Aaron priest along with his sons. Exodus 28.1, now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as a priest. 
Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. A common example of the kind of instruction that Moses gave to Aaron in this office is found in Leviticus 9.7. And Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. That's the heart of the work of the priest. He offers sacrifices for sins and prays for the people. It should be mentioned that instructions were also given for the anointing of Aaron and of his sons to serve in this work. They were officially set apart by God by anointing with oil, which represented the provision of the Holy Spirit for their work. The third office presented in the Old Testament is that of a king. This office was established with Saul, who failed, and then with David, who became a type of Christ. David was a type of Christ because he was a king of whom God said, according to Acts 13.22, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. God therefore commanded Samuel to anoint him as a king. As king, the man after God's own heart recognized that he was not there to enforce his own will, but to establish the rule of God. That's what the civil magistrate is supposed to do. He was different from other kings. He did not do his own will, but he upheld God's righteous laws and fought against and destroyed God's enemies. Our confession teaches that those who are rulers and governors are obliged to enforce the rule of God, not their own ideas or the will of the people, but the things of God. So he led the people into obedience and into battle for God. And in this way, David was an excellent example and representative of Christ to come. And now, I want to show you how Christ did indeed step into and fulfill each of these three offices. First, as prophet, he was declared by Peter in Acts 3 to be a prophet like Moses, a prophet that the people must listen to lest they be destroyed. Acts 3.22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And that's true. If we don't hear Christ, then it brings ruin to us. We cannot be saved. And just what did we find our dear Lord Jesus doing as soon as he was anointed and came forth from the wilderness where he'd been tested? Matthew 4.23 tells us, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Isn't that a marvelous thing? He goes forth with the gracious words of God's salvation, the gospel that God sent him, that God had sent him to bless the people, to bring salvation to them that's described in Isaiah 61. He's anointed me to preach the good tidings. He is the ultimate and final voice 
those who receive his word are saved. Those who do not believe and reject his word are condemned. In Matthew seven twenty four through 27, Jesus says as much. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. You see a a large tree outside, then you know that the reason it's standing is because it's attached to something that's much bigger than it is. It's attached to the earth. If it wasn't, that tree would not be able to stand. And, And so it is. We attach ourselves to Christ and his words, then we will stand. If we reject his words, we will fall. Likewise, in John 5, 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So you see why Moses had said that whoever does not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. If you don't hear him, you perish. So Christ is God's ultimate prophet who speaks salvation to us. That's marvelous in itself. And we need to see that he has not stopped speaking. It's an important thing about when we look at the offices of Christ. After his resurrection, he went to sit at God's right hand. And from there, he continues his work as prophet. He continues to speak through his servants as our prophet. When Paul writes to the Ephesians who never personally met Christ, they were Gentiles, He nevertheless says to them in Ephesians 4.20, but you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him. Now he doesn't say, literally, it does not say you have heard of him, but it says you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You see how it says then that they have heard Christ himself? The implication is that He is still speaking to us. Now that he is in heaven, when his word is preached, he is speaking to us. And he is. He speaks by his word when it is preached in a way that imparts faith and life to those in whom the Spirit of God is working. You are able then to hear his voice. Jesus declared in John 10 that he had a lot more sheep And that they would hear his voice and come to him. But how could they? He ascended up into heaven. How could they hear his voice? Well, it's fulfilled whenever a person hears the gospel preached and believes. Christ the prophet has spoken God's life-giving words to them that they might be saved through the ministry of the word. The catechism describes this as Christ carrying out then the office of prophet not only in his humiliation when he was here on earth, but in his exaltation when he went up to heaven. The work goes on. He came to earth and spoke to us on our level in our flesh, and then he went to heaven. And from there, he sends out his servants, ministers to preach 
His Word and He blesses that preaching by the working of the Holy Spirit so that we hear His voice and we live, we believe. Have you heard His voice? Have you heard the voice of Christ? Have you received the message of the gospel with authority from the one that God sent, from Jesus Christ himself. Now consider how he fulfills the office of priest. This, of course, is one of the most amazing offices that Christ came to fulfill. It's remarkable that he actually does as our priest to, what he does as our priest to completely fulfill the work of this office. It was no light thing that he was given to do. Yes, his, he offers sacrifice for sin and he prays prayers of intercession for our forgiveness like the priests of old did. But unlike any of them, he offers the only sacrifice that can take away the sin of God's people. He himself is the sacrifice for sin. He offers himself for our sin. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14 explains the difference. It says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Do you see? We have complete and total forgiveness of sin through him. He himself is the priest and he himself is the offering. Isaiah explains that all of our iniquities were laid on him and that by his stripes we were healed. In other words, he received the condemnation and the punishment and we receive the forgiveness of sins. Nothing more is needed. He has beautifully fulfilled office for all, this office for all who come to him and who are thereby pardoned and fully justified. Now, as with the office of priest, though, uh, I mean, as with the office of prophet, he continues to serve in the office of priest now that he has ascended into heaven. Indeed, now that his sacrifice is complete, he makes intercession for us on the basis of that sacrifice at the right hand of the Father in glory. To intercede is to plead before God for our forgiveness on the grounds that he has already offered the sacrifice to take away our sins. Hebrews points out the marvelous fact that he is a priest who lives forever and so does not have to be replaced after his death as the priests that were just types and shadows did. Hebrews 7.25 gives the happy result of this. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you see that he fulfilled his priestly office in his humiliation when he went to the cross in his exaltation when at the right hand of God, he intercedes for us. What comfort it brings to us to know that he is alive and pleading with us, ple- pleading for us 
on the basis of his sacrifice that takes away our sin. So have you come to know him as the priest who brings the blessing of forgiveness, atonement, forgiveness of sin? And now let's see how he fulfills the office of king. We've already seen how David represented him as one who, was estab- has, who established God's rule and as one who conquered God's enemies. David did this in a temporal way, but God promised to David that his son would do it in an eternal, ultimate way. David, being a prophet, responded to this hope with these divinely inspired words about Christ, whom he calls my Lord, in Psalm 110. 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. In saying that his enemies will be made his footstool, the meaning is that they will be brought completely under his control. They will each be brought to the place that God has appointed for them, and that place will, in all cases, be under Christ's dominion. There will be two very opposite outcomes for men when they are brought under the rule of Christ. Two very different ways that they'll be brought under his dominion. Those who are his elect will become willing servants, volunteers who delight to do his will. His power will see to that. Verse 3 of Psalm 110 speaks of them as the dew of the morning. It says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Now these uh, volunteers, his, his, by his power, you see, those who are once enemies become willing, happy servants. It takes a radical power of God to change us so that we will serve the Lord. Verse 4 speaks of how he will be their priest forever so that they will be always forgiven like we saw before. But in complete contrast to these converted enemies, those who remain with re- without repentance, will be eternally destroyed, cast into the lake of fire forever. Verse 5 and 6, The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He'll, He'll kill kings. He will judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He will, so he will mow down kings and, and nations and bring them to destruction by his mighty power. That's part of his kingly work. You can see here also how Christ executes the office of king both in, humiliation, in his humiliation and in his exaltation. In his humiliation, it was by himself submitting to the will of God under extreme trial. He himself showed himself to be the man after God's own heart that he might be worthy to be our king showing himself to be a man that did the will of God, one worthy to be received with his whole kingdom before God. The king was there on trial, and he, he showed that he was a man after God's own heart so that he could then lead God's people. And in his exaltation, his ministry is already powerfully at work as he subdues the rebellious will of all of God's elect so that we will come to him, making us willing volunteers. And at the last day, 
He will destroy Satan and all who are in his service, bringing them to the place of destruction. And all along the way, kings will rise up, but then he only lets them go so far and he pulls them down again. All that's going to be brought to a climax at the last day. What a great redeemer he is. How faithfully he fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king that were given to him by the Father. I plead with you, therefore, to receive him as God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. It requires a great dose of humility. You must admit that you are so foolish and ignorant that you need to be told what to believe about God and how to live for God. The greatest stumbling block is pride. We want to think that we know all about God. We don't need anyone to tell us. We don't need God's word. We can look at God's word and judge whether it's right or wrong, whether what it says is what we like it to say about God or not. No, that's a sorry place to be. That pride will bring your ruin. He has given the office of prophet to bring the truth to us because we're in darkness and ignorance if left to ourselves. Don't let your pride keep you from coming to him as a prophet. You must also admit that you are so wicked and guilty that you need Christ as your priest to bail you out. You need him to cover your sin by his own suffering. And you need him to plead with, your, with you on the basis of that suffering. You, you can't even do the pleading yourself. Yes, we should plead for the forgiveness of sins. But apart from his pleading, our pleading will not do the job. Don't let your pride keep you from coming to him as your priest. So easy for us to justify ourselves and to deny that we're sinners who need this priest. You must also admit that you are so weak and helpless that you need him to give you the inward strength to obey and that you need him to deliver you from your enemies that keep you from his service, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're in complete subjection and bondage to all of these apart from his mighty hand of deliverance. Only he can give you life in service to God. Only he can raise you up to live and only he can drive Satan and all of his enemies into the abyss. You can't drive those enemies away. You can't conquer death. That is the job of God's officer. Don't let your pride keep you then from coming to him as your king. So you see by what I say that you need a good dose, why, why I say that you need a good dose of humility in order to receive Christ in his offices. To have this humility, you must desire to be saved. You must want to be saved. You must be brought to see that it is, a, it is wonderful to be restored to fellowship with God, that we were fools to ever, ever gone away from God and to have ever hardened our heart and rejected God, that his service is life, that it's blessedness and true beauty. What we saw this morning, that it's where we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, where we love our neighbors, ourselves, that's what we're restored to. And you must be brought to where you want to escape from his wrath from your sinful condition, where you see the horror of dying in your sin, the terrible prospect of spending eternity in hell with Satan, with shrieks and cries, with annoying annoying conscience, and with hope, no hope of deliverance. Once you're brought to the place where you want to be reconciled to God and freed from the wrath to come, where you believe what God says and you accept it, then you will live in Christ as your prophet, your priest, and your king. 
And when you know Christ as your prophet, priest, and king, you will receive all of those benefits that we read about in Isaiah 61 that he brings to us through these offices. Remember again what he said, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus says, because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To preach the good tidings to the poor. So we have the access to the gospel. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or freedom to captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and that he may be glorified. It is misery, as we've seen in our catechism studies, to be separated and cut off from him. He comes that we may be restored again. And we enjoy that restoration as we walk with Christ now as our prophet, priest, and king, the ongoing work of those offices in our lives. And you'll be numbered also with the people who rejoice before him and bring glory to him, as in, again, verses 10 and 11. You will say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. You can't do any better than to have Christ as your prophet, priest, and king. For then you have the will of God brought to you in a way that you can understand and receive it. You have the forgiveness of sins and redemption brought to you through the very suffering and death of Christ and his intercession for you, applying that to your case. And you have him as a king to take that stony, rebellious heart and make it like his, a heart that responds to do the will of God. And then that he drives out all of our enemies that we couldn't possibly drive out. He is the prophet, priest, and king that God has sent, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Please stand and let's give thanks to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent and appointed to be our prophet, priest, and king. You anointed him with your Holy Spirit so that he was furnished to do your work. And then you gave him the assignment essentially to, to bless your people and to redeem them and restore by redeeming them and by restoring them to fellowship with you so that they would be filled with joy and gladness before your presence. They who had been in sin and misery would now become a people who are holy and righteous and filled with joy. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how gracious you have been in sending your son and that we would see how much we need Christ and that we would hold to him, and that we would proclaim him, and that we would rest in him, that we would know him and delight in him. Father, help all those who who hear this word to embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. We pray in his name. 
Amen. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, our prophet, priest, and king. Amen.